Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel reading this morning is from the 21st chapter of St. John. We are hearing once again what has become now the fourth post-resurrection story of Jesus in the gospel of John. Now, after Jesus had appeared to His followers in, in Jerusalem, Jesus showed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is in Galilee, and He showed Himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of His disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to Him, we'll go with you. So they went out, and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples, they did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you'll find some there. So they cast it, and they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, he said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment and he jumped into the sea, but, but the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. Now, when they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there, and, and there, were, there was fish on it and, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. And, and though there were so many, the net was not even torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because at this point, they knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time, he said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And, and so Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you were, grow old and you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to Peter, follow me. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, um, Kristen and I enjoyed a, a little bit of time away the last week. It was lovely to slip away from Salisbury and from, from home and place and work um, some, but it's always lovely to return, so thank you for welcoming us back and allowing us to, <laughs> to come back. Um, Kristen and I have been um, renovating a... Where is she? There she is. 
Krista and I have been renovating a bathroom recently. Now, yeah, how fun is that, right? I mean, whatever. For better or for worse, we decided to do the project ourselves. It saves um, a little bit of money, of course, but it also gives us something to do together, which is lovely, right? In two weeks, um, we're going to be celebrating our 30th anniversary. I'm just glad to report that we have not yet killed each other in this process of renovating the bathroom. Transformation. It doesn't come easy, does it? I mean, whether it's bathrooms or our own personal lives or our families or our schools or our communities, whatever it is, transformation is not easy. Like a bathroom, you're tempted just to leave well enough alone. You sort of get used to the drab color, and you stop noticing that little bit of mold in the caulking. (laughs) And the flooring, yeah, it needs to be changed, but I don't know, that throw rug sure hides a lot. (laughs) And so we convince ourselves to leave well enough alone. It's just easier that way. Been there? Yeah, sure, we all have. We're in a sermon series called Turn, when we explore how a relationship with Jesus can cause our lives to turn, to be transformed. We'll be looking carefully at the way Jesus transformed the lives of six different people in the New Testament by inviting them into a deeper relationship with Him. Last week, Pastor James uh, explored the story of Thomas, the disciple, as you might remember, who was transformed from doubting Thomas into the patron saint of the Christian church in India. Dramatic transformation. Today, we're going to take a look at Paul, Paul, who God transforms from a murdering demagogue to the greatest evangelist in history. It's remarkable. So, I'd invite you uh, to open up either your bulletins or your Bibles, again, to Acts chapter 9. It's the reading that Mary Willis shared with us. It's the conversion of Paul. But before I do that, I want to talk about stories in general. This is a very important story in, our, in, in the Christian faith, the story of Paul and the conversion of Paul. Maybe you've known it. If you know anything about the stories of faith, you've probably encountered this story of Paul being converted along the road to Damascus. Every family has a story. Every culture, every community, cities, nations, tribes all have stories. Stories are very, very important, and the act, the art of storytelling is critically important to our families, to our cultures, to our congregations, churches, to our tribes. Some are good stories, but not all are. Some are not so good. In the best of times, these stories can bind us together. They can help us or help to define who we are. They form our collective identity. And and what matters as much as the details of the story, and you know this to be true, it's the way in which the story is told. For example, I've heard tragic stories that are told in a way that lead the hearer to a place of bitterness and anger. But I've heard those very same stories told in ways that build resilience and strength and new beginnings. What are your stories, and how are those stories told? Well, the family of God has stories, no surprise. They're loaded in Scripture, stories that bind us together, form our identity as Christians, uh, stories that define our character and certainly reveal the character of God, which is why God, in the Old Testament in particular, if you've done any study of the Old Testament, you know that God is constantly telling the people of Israel, remember your story, remember, remember, tell your story over and over again to your children and your grandchildren, tell your story, don't forget it. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Don't stop telling that story. Or what about the story of Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit? Don't stop telling that story. Or the story of Noah and the ark of Moses and the Red Sea. What about the, what about the story of Daniel and the lion's den, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What about Samson and Delilah, Esther and Mordecai? What about, what about Ahab and Jezebel? All of those stories, don't stop telling them, God would tell the people of Israel. And most importantly for us as Christians, the stories surrounding the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's why we gather together. Every time we gather in worship, we tell the stories of faith. Don't forget to tell those stories, friends, stories that form us, good storytelling that helps to sustain us. Today's reading is one of those stories. It's from the book of Acts, and it's it's one of the most dramatic moments in Scripture, certainly the most dramatic moment in Paul's life that literally transformed him and transformed the church forever. It's such an important story that I'll be bold enough to say that, that you really can't fully understand the Christian faith without understanding this story. A little bit of background, though, before we, before we look at it again. Paul. It's the story of Paul. By the way, his name is actually Saul. God is going to change his name to Paul. That in itself shows the dramatic transformation in his life. But I'll probably be using more the, the name Paul just so it won't get too terribly confusing. But nevertheless, Paul was a disciple of Jesus, but he was not one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. In fact, he didn't walk alongside Jesus during his earthly ministry. He wasn't there when Jesus walked on water. He wasn't there when Jesus changed water into wine. He wasn't there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. He wasn't there when Jesus washed the disciples' feet or when He taught them the Lord's Prayer, the Beatitudes, or the Golden Rule. He wasn't there for any of that. He became a follower of Jesus later. But before that, before, before he was a follower of Jesus, Paul was the foremost persecutor of the early Christians. Now, hear that again. That's very important. Before Jesus, Paul became a follower of Jesus, he was the foremost persecutor of Christians in that, in that early church. It's really sort of hard to wrap our heads around because we, we don't face this, 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 this thing called persecution of the Christian community today in the United States, at least in our own community. Christians and religious groups are persecuted all the time around the world. Perhaps you heard of the dramatic and, and frightening persecution of Muslims in Ethiopia just this last week when a, when a mosque was totally destroyed by fire. It was, it's, it's ways in which people of faith have been persecuted throughout the centuries, but it's hard for us to wrap our heads around it because we, for the most part, face a, 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 a rather easygoing way of exercising our faith. And yet, in this time period, among this early group of Christians, those who have just been turned alive by Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, they are facing significant and dramatic persecution by people like Paul, the foremost persecutor of the early Christian church. Bar none, widely known, his goal to shut down the Christian church, to hunt those Christians down, to put them in prison, have them stoned to death on the spot if, if possible, which is what happened to the first martyr of, of all of, of, of Christendom, Stephen, while Paul stood on the sidelines sneering and holding their cloaks. Paul would do whatever it took, as it turns out, to, to destroy this early faith community, to wipe them out of existence. That was Paul. Just the mention of Paul's name brought fear and trembling to the early Christians. So now, 
Let's read verse 1. So take a look in your bulletins or your Bibles. Verse 1 again, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. You see that? Still, that's who he was. That's, that was, that was his, his number one agenda item. When he woke up in the morning, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and he's still doing just that. He went to the high priest, and he asked him for permission to go to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, the, the way is a way of describing the followers of Jesus, sort of the way of Jesus, then he might arrest them too and, and bring them to Jerusalem. It's incredible if you think about it, really, that in just a few years' time, Paul is going to become the most significant teacher, preacher, evangelist the church has ever known. He was, he was an incredible witness who dramatically shaped the future of the church, leading the way for it to become the fastest-growing faith movement in the history of the world. You cannot overstate Paul's influence on the early church. But before that, he is, you see it, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus, and he's taking his hatred on the road to Damascus, which, by the way, is 135 miles north of Jerusalem. It's, it's remarkable. I mean, Jerusalem, it's not enough to persecute just the Christians there. He wants to, to identify and to find and track down all the Christians that are between Jerusalem and Damascus, 135 miles away, so that he can hunt them down you better get the jails ready, I can hear Paul saying, because we're going to fill them up. Paul's not a guy you want to meet in a dark alley. Verse 3. So, as Paul approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up and enter the city of Damascus, and you will be told what you are to do. So they, his companions, those who had traveled with him, they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind, did not eat or drink anything. You see the contrast, right? It's remarkable. From a murdering persecutor to a helpless blind man who has to be led by his friends into Damascus, just like that. And that's where we're going to stop today. That's it. Well, I mean, I have a little bit more to say, if you don't mind. But that's where we're going to stop in this particular reading. If you know the story, you know that there's actually a part two. This is part one. This is a story of Jesus confronting uh, Paul on this, on this road to Damascus. It's, it's the beginning point of this dramatic transformation in the life of, of Paul. Part two, we're going to take a look at next week when a, a rather obscure um, uh, man named Ananias from Damascus is invited to be a part of this transformation process. Ananias doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to help out. He's heard about Paul. Why do I want to be engaged with Paul? Why do I even want to be in his presence? And yet, we'll see next week how God is eager to use us in this journey of transformation in the lives of others. But in the meantime, we have already learned a couple of things. Number one, and you know this to be true. In fact, you could preach this yourselves. You don't need me to say this. Number one, God can and will use anyone to advance His kingdom, anyone. Again, God can and will use anyone to advance His kingdom. 
especially, as it turns out, those that we've already given up on, especially, as it turns out, those who we assume can't get the job done, especially those that we hate and despise, those we fear, yeah, those too. You see, the crazy thing is that had anyone else been in charge, well, let me just say personally, had I been in charge, Paul would never have been given a chance. I mean, he wasn't anywhere close to being at the top of the list of volunteers for church work. I mean, nowhere. I'm sorry, I'm not calling up Paul to ask him if he can help out with, with, the, with the picnic this afternoon at Bell Tower Green. Not, not before that road to Damascus experience. I mean, he would have been written off as a wacko, as a radical, as a nutcase. And we do it all the time. Uh, we humans, as it turns out, we place what? judgment on people. We place judgment on their beliefs. We place judgment on their actions and their past, which, as it turns out, causes us to be unable to see the potential that God has in store for them. What we see is a hardened heart. What God sees is a new beginning. What does God see in you? Does God see your hardened heart, or does God see your potential. Paul, by every measure, should not have been given another chance. He was egotistical. He was a fire-breathing demagogue. He He was the man who arrested and jailed and killed the early Christians. Not a good resume, right? But God saw something within him that was redeemable. You see, God didn't see a man filled with conviction. God saw a man who was hiding behind his firm conviction, hiding from the truth. Do you know people like that? I do. And I'm not just talking about politicians. (laughs) People who hide behind their firm, strong convictions. Scripture is filled, as it turns out, with people like that. And oftentimes, it describes them as folks who are hiding from something or someone, hiding from God, hiding from their, those who are close to them, hiding from purpose, hiding from their loved ones, hiding from deeper relationships. We've already talked about some of them, Adam and Eve. They're hiding behind their shame in the garden. King Solomon, he's hiding behind his enormous wealth. Peter, the disciple, he's hiding from Jesus because of his guilt. Paul, he's hiding behind his fire-breathing conviction his certainty because of his fear that that real truth might utterly be different than anything he had ever known. You know, as it turns out, the journey of faith is filled with people who are hiding. That may be true of you today. It's certainly true, has been true of me and my own faith journey every now and then. Times in which we're hiding from something hiding from the truth, hiding from deeper relationship with Jesus or with one another, hiding from something. But here's the miracle in the story. Jesus didn't judge Paul because he was hiding. Jesus showed up. He set aside all that Paul was, and he just showed up. I mean, come on, let's be real. He didn't have to but he did. 
He showed up. I mean, think about it. Come on. Just think about the disciples, what had already gone on in Jesus' life. The disciples, the 12 disciples, they had betrayed Him. They had denied Him. They had stood by when He was arrested. They ran and hid when He was crucified. I mean, Jesus had every reason in the world to pick up His marbles and just walk away, to find a whole new set of disciples. But He didn't. Instead, He met Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Instead, he broke down the doors of the upper room, which Pastor James talked about last week. Instead, uh, he tracked down Peter at the Sea of Galilee in today's reading, in today's gospel. Sure, I'm fully aware that the greatest miracle of all is Jesus being raised from the dead. But in a close second, it seems to me, is Jesus showing up in moments like these. Just giving us another chance, turning us around, softening our hearts, transforming us, welcoming us into a new beginning. And listen, that's why Jesus showed up that day on the road to Damascus, and that's why He shows up in our lives, in our world today, because our God is a God of extravagant grace, abundant grace, who shows up when we least deserve it, when everyone else has written us off, Jesus shows up. Thanks be to God.